Well, good morning and welcome to the Hills. Some of you are watching online, some of you are in person at West Fort Worth campus, Keller campus, or North Richland Hills campus. I'm glad you're with us. My name is Rick. I'd like you to open your Bibles, find the third chapter of the book of 1 Peter, and we will be there in a moment. Now, I've mentioned several times that in February, I got to experience the trip of a lifetime and spend 11 days in the land of Israel, walking where Jesus walked. There were so many blessings that I expected, but there were some I did not. And one of the biggest was the reminder of just how global the Jesus movement is. That there were people from nations all over the world speaking tongues from all over the world. And we were all gathered for the same reason, because we are followers of Jesus of Nazareth. We spent our first three nights in the city of Bethlehem. And that's where I got to meet Daphne. You can see her picture here. Daphne is from Indonesia, a nation where over 90% of the citizens practice Islam. Daphne's story of coming to faith was dramatic. She's asking God out of confusion, who are you? Are you Allah? Are you Buddha? Are you Jesus? Do you have a name? And at the end of her prayer walk, someone happened to hand her a devotional book. And she turned to the day of the month that it was. And at the top was the scripture from John 14, where Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you do not know that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And in that moment, Daphne knew the God she was to worship was named Jesus. She began to share her faith. She began to see people in her family come to faith. And she talks about that. Watch this short video as Daphne explains her faith walk. So you'll hear her say, I'm getting scared. I'm sharing my faith, but I'm getting scared. And I felt prompted in that moment to get up and pray over Daphne, 1 Peter 3.15, that you don't give in to fear. You revered Christ as Lord in your heart, and you're always ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. I'm thankful she let me pray over her because she was probably disappointed when she met someone in our group and they said, yeah, we're from a big church in Texas and our pastor is with us. She said, is it Joel Osteen? No, <laughs> wasn't Joel, it was just me. But I prayed over Daphne, and you'll hear her response when I was through praying. Hallelujah. Amen. And I always pray for America. I love that. I always pray for America. Now, here's why I shared that story with you. Daphne is a modern-day example of the tension that... Peter's readers felt. Remember, all through the theme of 1 Peter, you are living in the land you've always lived in, but your faith in Jesus has made you a foreigner. That's how Daphne feels. She has lived in Indonesia all her life, but now suddenly she is considered strange and she gets scared and she needs courage and she needs to be encouraged. But here's the thing we all do. That's why we all 
need to lean into our living hope grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to see that again today. So look with me starting in chapter 3 of 1 Peter and verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, you went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, Peter wrote a second letter. And in that letter, he threw Paul under the bus and said, I know Paul's written. And he writes some things that are hard to understand. And Paul might reply, Peter, you are the pot calling the kettle black. Because you have written some things that are hard to understand. And we're going to get there in just a moment. But here's what's not hard to understand. Suspicion of aliens is normal. People who live strangely raise eyebrows. Peter's unquestioned assumption is that if you live counter-culturally, you are going to get questioned. Now, that's especially true if you live like we talked about last week and you get mistreated but you respond in the odd way of the cross. People will not understand this. And so remember again what Peter says in verse 15. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. In other words, to be a Christian, to be a foreigner or an exile, Living differently than the people around you. To be a Christian is to be asked why. Or to put it another way, people who possess hope will have opportunities to profess hope. You will be asked why you live like you live. I want to show you a picture of a man I have great admiration for. His name is Pastor Shadonke Johnson. I've not personally met him, but some of my friends have. He has planted over 3,000 churches in the nation of Sierra Leone in Africa, a nation that's been through a terrible civil war. And in that time, he has been arrested and captured. And he tells a story of a rebel commander. His hands are tied behind his back. And the commander says, I am about to kill you. So you can talk to whatever God you want to talk. It makes no difference. And Shadonki bowed his head and said, God, I need courage for this moment. 
to witness to this man. So he said, sir, before you kill me, could I have five minutes of your time? He said, go ahead, you're a dead man. He said, sir, I'm not afraid to die. If you kill me, there are angels waiting right now to carry me to heaven. But sir, if you die right now, you won't go to heaven. You need to make Jesus the Savior and Lord of your life. And you need to know that even if you kill me, if you will believe and put your trust in Jesus, he will forgive you. The commander looked a moment and said to his comrades, let him go. He is a crazy man. And they let him go. And two weeks later, that rebel commander found Sadonke Johnson and said, I have not been able to sleep. No one has ever talked to me like you talked to me. Tell me more. That commander, two of his comrades, and both of his sons are now followers of Jesus Christ. People who possess hope will get opportunities to profess hope. You see, when the resurrection of Jesus becomes real to you, then the hope you experience is the hope you're going to get to explain. Notice what the Hebrew writer says. Let us hold firmly to the hope we have confessed because we can trust God to do what he promised. So hope is something to be confessed. Now, notice Peter says, we don't do it obnoxiously. We don't do it arrogantly. We profess our hope with gentleness, but also with boldness, because what we proclaim may sound odd, but it is the story of God, and it is very good news. So when we're asked to explain our hope, what do we say? Well, right here in our text, Peter said there are three things you can tell people. Here's number one, that Jesus was crucified and resurrected to make us right with God. That our hope is not grounded in mystery. It's grounded in history. We hope in what God will do because of what God has done in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Look again at verse 18. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. This is our gospel. This is what we explain. This is the reason for the hope we have. The one who never sinned died for sinners to bring them to God. I know what happened at the cross is too big for any one metaphor, but any atonement theory has to include the idea of substitution. Jesus did something for us we could not do for ourselves. Look again at chapter 2, what Peter said that we looked at last week. That Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. That something happened at the cross that made it possible for people like you and me that are unrighteous to come safely into the presence of a righteous God. Uh, Paul gives us more understanding in Colossians 2. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. 
Let me tell you about that word counsel. I know it's a negative word today, but it was a beautiful word when Paul wrote. Because it meant to wipe off. You see, in their day, when they would record ledgers of debts, they would put it on a parchment, but their ink had no acid, so it couldn't bite into the parchment. You could take a wet rag and you could wipe that ink off and there would be no record that any debt had ever been recorded. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no record that the believer owes God anything. Nancy Orberg tells a neat story. Her daughter was graduating from Azusa Pacific University. At the graduation ceremony, the president called up three graduates who were planning to go spend the next two years of their life working with the poorest of the poor in India. They assumed, well, we're going to be commissioned and prayed over. The president turned to them and said, an anonymous donor has heard about what you're doing, and he's given a gift to our school. He said to the first student, your debt of $105,000 has been forgiven. To the second, your debt of $70,000 is gone. To the third, your debt of $130,000 is removed. There wasn't a dry in the place. Can you imagine that? Your debt is completely gone and there's no record of it. That's what he's saying. Look at Hebrews 8. I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. This is what we tell people. This is our hope. Our living hope means we stop living like we have a rap sheet. And we start living like people who can come into the presence of a holy God with no fear at all. But, oh yeah, that's worth clapping for. Our hope gets even bolder. Because after Jesus went to a cross, Peter said, he went to a prison. Look again, verse 19 and 20. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. What on earth is Peter talking about? What is this prison ministry of Jesus? Here's the big idea. And here's why we have hope. Because Jesus has declared his victory over all evil. He went and preached the spirits in prison in the days of Noah. I don't think it means that he preached through Noah uh, because it says it happened after he was made alive by the Spirit. And the verb tense is a one-time announcement, whereas Noah preached the whole time he's building the ark. I don't think it means he just went and preached to the people that were disobedient in the days of Noah. Why would he only preach to them? Here's the thing to note. The word spirits, when you find it in the Bible or in intertestamental literature, If it's unqualified, it never refers to human beings. It always refers to supernatural beings. I think what Jesus did was preach to rebellious, imprisoned angels. And let me explain. And by the way, for the next two minutes, what you're about to hear is not thus saith the Lord. It's thus saith the pastor. And there is a difference. But. We read about the flood of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, but here's how the chapter starts. When the sons of God, in the Old Testament, sons of God is a reference to angels. When the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, they took them as their wives and had children with them. They created a rest of people called the Nephilim. I believe wicked fallen angels took on human form. Angels can do that. And they had sex with these human women. 
And God said, the depravity of man has reached such a low that I will flood this earth and begin again. I know that sounds crazy. But here's what you need to know. That was the commonly accepted interpretation in the days of Peter, of Genesis chapter 6. That those sons of God were angels in human form. And that they were in prison. And that's what Peter believed. Let me show you. Second book, chapter 2. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Notice how he put those two things together. And what's the point? Verse 9. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. This is who Jesus preached to. And by the word, that word is interesting. Two other times in 1 Peter, he used the word preached, which means declare the good news. That's not the word he uses here. The word he uses here is make an announcement. Here's what happened. After he was raised from the dead, Jesus went to this uh, prison where these wicked angels were being kept by God. Maybe they thought someday Satan would win and they'd get out. Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, ain't happening. I have won. Your judgment is unalterably sealed. Now, why would this encourage Peter's uh, readers? Remember, they are living under the power of an empire that is killing Christians. They're surrounded by people that are being hostile to them. And Peter says, remember the authority of Jesus. These fallen angels represented the embodiment of evil spiritual authority. But Jesus declared his dominion over them. So Peter said, if Jesus has declared dominion over them, what other power needs to intimidate? You or us. (coughs) Peter says they need to hear about your hope. Don't be afraid. In your heart, make Jesus Lord. And let people know about the hope that you have. We need to hear Peter's words. We live in a world full of darkness and sin and decay and death. But the world needs to know we're people of hope. When I was in college, I had good friends named Ty and Lisa. I preached their wedding. For many years, my friend Ty has, and still is, a pastor. But some years ago, Lisa was diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer. She fought valiantly. A few years ago, Ty sent me this email that I've kept. According to her oncologist, the cancer has taken over. We'll be securing hospice care today. It's probably just a matter of weeks for her to live. Her body's too fatigued to fight the cancer anymore. No matter how long you know something is going to happen, when it finally comes, it's hard to face. But we are all, Lisa included, facing this in the light of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is Lisa's desire to die well. We're not asking God for anything other than his provision for each day so we can live it to his glory. 
This is the culmination of Lisa's life as a disciple of Jesus, her Lord and Savior. Heaven awaits, and that's a very good thing. In the darkest moments, we declare that Jesus has declared victory over all evil. There is a reason for the hope that we have. Because our Jesus has gone to a cross for us. He's gone to a prison to declare evil has lost. And then he went to a throne. Look at verse 22. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God and all the angels and authorities and powers except his authority. Why do we have hope? Well, finally, because Jesus is now reigning as Lord over everyone and everything. You know, sometimes I see cartoons, and supposedly they're depicting hell, and there's a throne, and Satan is on the throne ruling hell. Let me remind you, Satan does not rule hell. Jesus does. In fact, there is no throne in hell. There's only one throne, and it's in heaven, and it's occupied, and it's not up for grabs. There is no sphere of existence over which Jesus is not sovereign. Now, granted, right now, evil is allowed to have its moments. And we do not yet see the full totality of Jesus' reign. But our hope is real. And one day it will be fully realized This entire universe is headed for a dramatic reversal when Jesus returns. All evil is going to be destroyed in the cosmic outworkings of his death. All creation is going to be restored in the cosmic result of his resurrection. And every knee is going to bow and declare that Jesus is Lord. And doesn't knowing the future fuel hope in The present. Let me illustrate this way. Look at this picture. Longhorn fans will recognize Vince Young running into the end zone in the last seconds to win the national championship for the University of Texas in football in 2006. One of the greatest games I have ever witnessed. And if you ever have watched the Longhorn Network, you know they play this game 43 times a week because they've had nothing since to brag about. <laughs> I'm just telling the truth. I remember in a hotel room in Bloomington, Indiana, watching this game. My stomach was turning. It was so tense down to the last seconds. And I'll catch myself times watching a replay of that game and getting tense and then stopping and saying, wait a second, I know how this ends. And it changes everything. That's what living hope does. We live this day in light of that day. We're not living for victory. We are living in victory. It's one reason we got baptized. Listen again to Peter. That water is like baptism that now saves you. Not the washing of dirt from the body, but the promise made to God. From a good conscience. And this is because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. See, the power of baptism is not in water. There's a great story about Henry Ford in the early days of the automobile industry. He had a person that worked at his plant in Detroit who borrowed tools like 
Everyone did and took them home and they never came back. But this man got saved. He got baptized. And the day after his baptism, he took all those tools and he went to his foreman and said, I have been keeping these tools at my house, but I'm a Christian now. I got baptized yesterday, and they don't belong in my home. And I bring them back, and I ask for your forgiveness. The foreman was so overwhelmed, he cabled Henry Ford, who was in Europe, and said, what should I do? And Ford cabled back, dammed the Detroit River, and baptized the whole plant. (laughs) You see, if it was just getting people in water, I'd walk over swimming pools and push strangers in. No, he said, it's not the washing of the outside. It's that pledge of the inside. It's that declaration of trust in Christ and in his death and resurrection. Baptism proclaims our living hope in the triumph of Jesus. In baptism, we go public for this gospel by acting it out. We actually picture and we participate in Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And every baptism we witness reminds us that Jesus won and that we're on his side. So I'm going to be bold as I close, talking to all of you online and at Keller, West Fort Worth, North Richardson Hills. Have you been baptized? And if not, why not? Maybe you're thinking, but I was dedicated as an infant by my parents. That's a beautiful thing. But by getting baptized, you're not rejecting their decision. You're confirming it. You're declaring that you want to become who they hoped you would become, a follower of Jesus, and you are making your faith your own. You need to be baptized. I know I'm talking to some people that want to get baptized, but you're afraid of water. Remember what Peter said? You You don't rule your life by fear. You rule your life by faith. Let your faith conquer your fear. And by the way, in over 40 years of passion, I've never seen anybody drown by faith. We won't let that happen. Maybe you're thinking, but I wasn't planning to get baptized today. Did you know that almost everyone in the New Testament that God baptized was not planning to that day? The Bible doesn't say tomorrow is the day of salvation. It says today is the day of salvation. God is working in your heart right now, wanting you to get baptized. But maybe you're thinking, Pastor, you don't know my past. Your past cannot keep you from a future with God. Hear this good news. Jesus Christ died, was buried, and raised again to bring sinners safely home to God. There's only two reasons why you should not get baptized. Either you don't believe the story of Jesus is true, or you just don't want him to be the Lord of your life. If that's where you are, I don't want you to get baptized. But if you believe the story is true, and you want Jesus to be your Lord, that today is the day to profess the hope you possess. You can look back the rest of your life on today and say, that was a day I went public and said to the world, my hope is in Jesus. So let me pray over you. Father, I'm praying over all listening to me online at each campus, even people that will hear this message later. 
that the Holy Spirit will work powerfully in their hearts and they will respond with obedience and they will step out. They will act out, live out the gospel and participate in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Give us all, God, more courage to profess the hope that we possess to the glory of Jesus who is coming soon. We pray in his name. Amen.